Daniel chapter 8. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa in the province of Elam. In the vision, I was beside the Ulai Canal. I looked up and there before me was a realm with two horns standing beside the canal and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. I watched the ram as it charged towards the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against it and none could rescue from its power. It did as it pleased and it became great. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between its eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. It came towards the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at in great range. I saw attacking the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering its two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against it. The goat knocked into the ground and trampled on it, and none could rescue the ram from its power. The goat became very great, but at the height of its power, the large horn was broken off, and in its place, four prominent horns grew up towards the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came another horn, which started small, but grew in power to the south and to the east and towards the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens, and it threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. It took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord and his sanctuary was thrown down. Because of rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did and truth was thrown to the ground. Then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to him, how long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, the surrender of the sanctuary and the trampling underfoot of the Lord's people. He said to me, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man. And I heard a man's voice from the Uli calling. Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. As he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. While he was speaking to me, I was in deep sleep with my face to the ground. Then he touched me and raised me to my feet. He said, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goats is the king of Greece, and the large horn between its eyes is the first king. The four horns that replace the one that was broken off represents four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation, but will not have the same power. In the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a fierce-looking king, a master of intrigue will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. 
He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. The vision of the evenings and mornings that has been given to you is true. Seal up the vision, for it concerns the distant future. I, Daniel, was worn out. I lay exhausted for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. Forgive me, Natasha is the autobiography of a Russian man called Sergei Kurdakov. He was born in 1951. He was raised in children's homes until the age of si from the age of six. He was an athletic, strong, intelligent man, highly ambitious and a hard worker. He truly believed in communist ideals. He lived in the Soviet Union and he made it his goal to excel in the Communist Party. They singled him out from an early age as just the kind that the state needs. In his late teens, Sergei was promoted to the head of a police squad consisting of over a dozen other young men. He handpicked them for their physical prowess, their boxing and their fighting skills. They were initially responsible for jobs like breaking up fights in pubs and bars. Brutality was encouraged and the people that they targeted often ended up battered. But it turned out there were much more menacing enemies to the state. These people were referred to as believers. Now, interestingly, they weren't religious people as such, since religion and the church could be managed. But these were people who deeply believed in God and lived for him. Sergei wrote, Comrade Lenin said that we can close the churches and put the leaders in jail. But it's very hard to drive faith and belief from the heart of a man once he is contaminated by them. This is why we don't call them Christians or churchgoers. We call them believers. They believe inside. And to root this belief from their hearts is a very difficult task. So Sergei and his squad were sent on missions to break up meetings of believers, usually small gatherings of 10 to 15 people who were praying and singing and reading the Bible. They were savagely beaten by the squad who often got drunk before they set off and their literature was seized and most of it burnt. Bibles which had been smuggled in to the Soviet Union or copied out by hand. Now Sergei was struck by the beauty of one girl, Natasha Zdanova, who they found at a meeting and beat severely, but they kept finding her at other gatherings as well. One time he himself beat her repeatedly until he was exhausted. But the brutality of the squads didn't stop Natasha gathering to worship. Overall, in fact, it was impossible to stem the numbers of believers all over the country who were becoming Christians. Now, that's part of Sergei's story. We're going to come back to it. But what about Natasha? What was it like as a teenage girl to be a faithful Christian in an underground church in the Soviet Union? To know that uh, on any given Sunday when you went to gather with your brothers and sisters, it could, the meeting could be shattered by powerful state-sponsored squads who would physically brutalise you. What was it like to trust Jesus and to believe in his promises 
uh, of love for you and of your security and safety when such things were happening? How did they endure faithfully? Now, that part of history took place within living memory, within my lifetime. But it takes us right back into Daniel chapter 8 and into the issues which are actually raised there. Now, that might not have been immediately obvious uh, as we heard it being read. I have wondered as I've studied this second half of Daniel, is there an element here of fools rush in where angels fear to tread? A number of other pastors who I've spoken to have said, oh, you're doing Daniel. Are you going to carry on after chapter six? And I've said, yes, we are. Now, we are certainly in one of the strangest parts of the Bible, aren't we? At least to us, it's strange. But for early readers, uh, they understood the rules of the game. They understood that this was a kind of literature that you just instinctively would read and interpret in a different way, just as you can switch gears unconsciously as you move between reading a newspaper, uh, reading a, a recipe book, reading a, a, a novel, a mystery novel, re reading a child's fairy tale, reading uh, something on Instagram. You just switch genres. And so could they, because this type of writing was known to them. Uh, it's referred to as apocalyptic writing. It means an unveiling, a revealing of the truth behind the scenes. And examples of it are found in the prophet Isaiah and Ezekiel, Zechariah, and one of the earliest here in Daniel. And if you want more on that, then please look at last week's sermon where we talked about that in more detail. In this incredible chapter, chapter 8, we find God revealing the future to this prophet Daniel in an accurate prophecy. Now, he doesn't reveal exact details, but it is historically accurate to events that took place in the 2nd century BC. And Daniel was living in the 6th century BC, so there's a few hundred years between. And this prophecy this that's given in a vision was not given so that Daniel could kind of impress people like a magic trick, but to give his readers courage when the time came, to put steel into their spine, to help them to endure faithfully in times of suffering. Because as God's people, we need to know that hard times come. Times of testing, times where we need to persevere. But God's enemies will not have the last word. God will triumph in his time and vindicate his people. And this is true not just for Daniel and for those events leading up to the birth of Jesus Christ, but in all of history as we wait for his return. Let's look at this amazing chapter under two headings. Firstly, Daniel's dream, and secondly, what it means. Daniel's dream and what it means. Daniel's dream, and as we think about this vision, just try and use your imagination to experience the sights and the sounds of this imagery. Verse one situates the vision in, in time. Daniel had this dream in the third year of Belshazzar's reign, King Belshazzar was a king in the Babylonian Empire, a successor to, to Nebuchadnezzar. And that means the dream came about two years after the previous one that we looked at last week. And so it's situated in time. It's also situated in place. There's a location mentioned. Daniel, uh, in, in the night, sees himself in this place called Susa, a citadel, in the province of Elam. In other words, he wasn't in Babylon. He's seeing himself hundreds of miles away in the heart of the Persian Empire in a place called 
Susa and the Medo-Persian Empire, the Medes and the Persian Empire combined, are the ones who are going to overthrow Belshazzar, as we know from chapter 5. And Daniel sees himself by this Ulai Canal, a massive canal that was an international tributary, a waterway like the, the Suez Canal or the Panama Canal. And then at that point, you might say the vision gets wild and woolly because we have a ram and a goat. First of all, there's this ram in verses 3 to 4, and he's standing by the, can the canal, so he's in Persia, and he's got two horns, these long horns, and one of them is longer than the other, but it grew up later. And this ram is charging around. It's sort of irrepressible. It goes to the west and the north and the south, and it says none could rescue from its power. It did as it pleased, and it became great. Now, that's striking language. Because in the Old Testament, the one who does as he pleases is God. And the one who is great is God. So this is, in its, in its uh, unstoppable might and force, this ram is, is acting almost in godlike ways. And it seems to be unstoppable. No one can, can get in its way. Now that's the ram. Remember, uh, we thought last week about horns. Horns are a symbol of power in the Bible. And these are long, they're very far-reaching, strong, powerful ones. You can't resist it. Now, if you're struggling to keep up so far, don't worry, because Daniel was as well. Look at verse 5. He says, as I was thinking about this, <laughs> okay, so far we've got a ram with two horns and one of them's growing longer than the other. But suddenly it gets even more bizarre, almost like a cartoon. There's a goat that appears, uh, but it's incredibly speedy. Listen to this. This goat with a prominent horn between its eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. So it's moving so fast, you can't even see its legs, and it's like this flying goat, and it comes to this ram, and it charges at it in great rage, and it just attacks it furiously, and it knocks it to the ground, tramples on it, and nothing can rescue this ram from its power. The goat absolutely gives the ram a kicking, and it became very great, even greater than the ram. But it says, at the height of its power, that large horn in the centre of its head was broken off and four other horns came up in its place. Now, we've had the ram and the goat and now we come to the third part of the vision. And I have to say at this point, things become very dark indeed. Because out of those four horns comes another one. And it starts small. It seems insignificant, but it grows in power to the south and the east and towards the beautiful land. And the beautiful land is the land of Israel, the promised land, the land God's people were given that was flowing with milk and honey. And it's reaching towards their homeland. Can you feel there's a tension starting to build now? What is this horn going to do? Verses 10 to 12 are absolutely heartbreaking for Daniel. We mustn't skip over these details. Listen to what it says. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens and it threw down some of the starry host down to the earth and trampled them down. It set itself up to be a, as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. That's God. It took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord and his sanctuary was thrown down. Because of rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did 
and truth was thrown to the ground. What Daniel is seeing here is a, a catastrophic episode in the, in the history of the Jewish people. Uh, a time where power will come from outside and will threaten their very existence. Their culture, their faith, their identity was built around the land and especially around the temple. One of the wonders of the ancient world where daily sacrifices were offered to the God of Israel, the Holy One. And wherever Jews were in the world, they would look to Israel, to the, to the temple when they prayed. They would send money every year to help pay for those daily sacrifices. Uh, that, the temple was the place, the, the one place in, in, in the world where people could have access to the living God, where God specially dwelt and where he made himself known. And here it says that this horn set itself against that and in a battle that's spiritual it, it opposes the very heavens and it seems to win. It prospered in everything it did. The sanctuary was thrown down. The sacrifices are stopped and truth is thrown to the ground. Now this vision is so terrible that in verse 13 an angel actually cries out, how long? And that kind of prayer, how long, O oh Lord, is the sort of thing that people pray when they're in great distress in the Psalms. The psalmists pray, how long, O oh Lord, how long will you let this go on forever? And when they're in great distress and, and, and deep depression or under a terrible opposition, people cry out in their pain, Lord, how long, how long will this go on? And here an angel cries it out. And, and an angel here even fills out in more detail what this vision means. It says, how long will it take? This vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the surrender of the sanctuary, listen to this, and the trampling underfoot of the Lord's people. This is a vision of, of the absolute smashing and the desecration of everything that they'd lived for for centuries and of the hope of the world. It's an awful, awful vision. We can't, we can't overestimate how, how devastating it was for Daniel to see this. This is the kind of dream where you wake up in tears uh, and you can't get over it and the answer to the question how long is 2300 evenings and mornings which is not exactly clear is it scholars do argue over what this means does it mean literally uh, 2300 days that's six and a bit years or if it's evenings and mornings should you halve that number and, and come up with 1,150 days, which is about three and a half years. That's probably more likely. Or some say, well, in, in this kind of writing, numbers are symbolic. You know, you don't necessarily match them up with a time period. Maybe it's, it's a symbolic number. It just means a specific time. Now, the main point, I think, is this. The time is limited and the future is known by God. Although what will happen to God's people is horrific, it is strictly limited in its duration. It is only for a season. It does not continue for one moment, one morning, longer than he permits. Now, <laughs> we're 15 minutes into the sermon. And if you're struggling at this point with all these goats, rams and horns, take heart. So was Daniel. Look at what he says there in verse 15. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it. There before me stood one 
who looked like a man. He's scratching his head, he's trying to understand the vision. So he asks for help, and in verses 16 to 18, there is a, a, a reported how a, one that looks like a man but comes from heaven comes to him with an interpretation, and this is Gabriel, the angel Gabriel. Very rare that angels are named in the Bible. We don't have much information about them. Angels are an, uh, spiritual beings, heavenly beings who uh, live with God, and here one of them is sent with a message and Gabriel explains that this vision concerns the time of the end now that's not the end of the world as such but the end of that period in history the end of that epoch which was Daniel was living in and here Gabriel explains is the historical connection and this is where it, it ties into actual events in history that we know about verse 20 says that that ram with the two horns was the empire of the Medes and Persians, Media and Persia, and the, the Persians became more dominant, hence the, the horn that grew longer and more powerful. But they were broken by the, the king of Greece, uh, who developed at extraordinary speed and attacked with great swiftness. And you would know who this is, Alexander the Great, the first king of Greece. He was tutored by Aristotle as a boy. He succeeded his father's throne at age 20. He was made a military general at 21. And by the age of 26, Alexander the Great had conquered the known world. I suppose that's why they called him Great. He was, you might say, a high achiever. But Alexander was dead by the age of 33. Hence verse 8 that says the horn was broken off suddenly. And in his place, four generals rose up who were prominent and each took power. Now what about that very dark time that came next? One of those four generals gave rise to a, a kingdom called the Seleucids, uh, a Greek-based empire but a specific kingdom that reigned for some years. And one of those Seleucid rulers is not very well known in world history. Most of us probably haven't heard of him, but Jewish people know his name well. He was a general who became a king, and his name was Antiochus Epiphanes IV, Antiochus IV. Now, verses 23 to 25 are among the hardest words in the Old Testament, and they left Daniel shattered and exhausted, because it says that Antiochus, a fierce-looking king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong. He will cause astounding devastation. And he will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. That's God. And yet he will be, be destroyed, not by human power. What did Antiochus Epiphanes do? There's a Jewish history book written between the two testaments called Maccabees. In fact, there's more than one book of Maccabees. Uh, actually, you might know Mancunians. There is a Jewish football team in Manchester called the Maccabees. And this is a very, very important source of history and understanding of what happened in that time period. Uh, the, the Maccabees describe how at uh, one year, Antiochus, on the way back from invading Egypt, uh, strode into Jerusalem and he robbed the temple. He took the golden altar he took the lampstand that was there for light. 
He took all the utensils. He took the table with the bread of the presence, the cups for drink offerings, the bowls, the golden censers. He took the curtains, the crowns, and the gold decoration on the front. He stripped it all off. He took the silver and the gold and the costly vessels. He took hidden treasures that he found, and he went back to his own land. Just a few years later, having absolutely sacked, ransacked their temple, Antiochus returned uh, in power. And this is what he did. He wrote to his whole kingdom that everyone should be one people and that all should give up their own particular customs and religion. And the king sent letters by messengers to Jerusalem and all the towns of Judah. And he directed them to follow his religion and customs to forbid their burnt offerings and sacrifices. He stopped the sacrifices in the temple. He profaned their, their, their Sabbath day. He defiled their sanctuary by offering pig's flesh, unclean meat in the temple. And he renamed the Temple of Jerusalem <clears throat> as the Temple of Zeus and set up in it a, an object of worship that was sacred to Zeus. He forbid them to circumcise their boys he burned and destroyed their scriptures. It was the most determined effort to wipe out the Jewish people until that which came in the last century under Adolf Hitler. Antiochus Epiphanes was the Hitler of the ancient world. And Daniel sees that. He sees that as he looks forward. And he, it says at the end of the chapter, at the end I was worn out. I lay exhausted for several days. Daniel was appalled by what he saw. He, he could not, could not come to terms with it. Now, that's what Daniel saw, Daniel's dream. And we may ask, well, you know, that's, that's very interesting, uh, it, but it's, it's a long time ago in a, in a place far, far away. What does it mean for me? What does it mean for you? And we know from the New Testament that all of the Bible, all scripture is breathed out by God, utterly reliable and useful. All scripture is useful, the Bible says, for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So what does this mean for us? We've thought a bit about Daniel and his contemporaries. What does it mean for us? Three principles emerge here. And I want us just to spend our, the last of our time pondering these three as we think about what it means for us. That God's people will suffer. That God's people are safe. And that God's people have a saviour. We will suffer. We are safe. And we have a saviour. Firstly, God's people will suffer. This is why Daniel was so sick and heartbroken at the end of the chapter. So appalled. You see... He'd heard, like the other exiles, a prophecy from Jeremiah. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, who'd seen the fall of Jerusalem, but prophesied that they would return to Jerusalem in 70 years. And it was accurate to the year. It was true. They, would, they did go back in 70 years. And those exiles that went back had the book of Daniel. But now Daniel sees that there's a bigger horizon. And it's one that's covered in dark storm clouds. Because if those exiles thought that God's kingdom would be fully restored after that trip across the desert back to Jerusalem, they were sadly mistaken. There was a lot more to come. 
There was a lot more history to come before his kingdom would arrive and there would be much suffering. After that return to the beautiful land, there would come the Seleucid Empire and then there would come Antiochus IV who would wage that most vicious campaign against the Jewish people and at the end of which they would feel, they would fear that it was all over. Now this message wasn't just for them, you know, it was for us too. This message that God's people will suffer was actually for God's people in every generation. It is the lot of many of God's people to suffer for a time. Let me say it again. It is the lot. It is the purpose of God that his people will suffer for a time. We thought about some of that last week, didn't we, with the, the statistics of the, the numbers of Christians who've been martyred uh, for their faith during the 20th century. Just like those believers in the Soviet Union, Natasha, who was beaten by Sergei. Now let's just think about that. If God's people will suffer, and it's part of his plan, are we ready to accept suffering in our lives as part of God's perfect will for us? Are, are we ready to accept suffering in our lives as part of God's perfect loving will for us? We come from a culture that just can't deal with suffering. Everything in our Western culture is geared to say you mustn't suffer. If, so, if you're suffering, something's deeply wrong. Blame somebody, find someone to blame and, and do everything you can to stop suffering. But actually we learn here that this can be part of God's perfect will that his people suffer. Uh, will you accept that if it's coming to your life now? I'm not saying accept it in a stoic way. Far from it. We must learn to weep, lament, wail, scream, rage in the presence of God. Bring your wounds, your broken heart to God. He knows about them already. Come into his presence. Ask him, Lord, how long? Seek him in it. Of course we must do that. But we must also be ready to, to accept and even embrace that it's part of his perfect will and that he's doing something greater and more glorious through it than we can yet see. Now that's us. But are we ready to stand with those in other parts of the world who are suffering in much more intense and real ways? Grace Church people, if you've been around the church for any time, you'll know about some of our mission partners. You'll know about Kerem and his work in Turkey, supporting Turkish church leaders and, and planting his own church there in the south of Turkey. You'll know if you were here at Grace a few years ago when Kerem visited us, that Turks who are professing Christians have their employment status changed on their, their official papers. It's very hard for them to get a job. You'll know that Kerem's church pre-COVID, was guarded every Sunday morning by a police guard. You'll remember that Kerem receives death threats every week over the phone and in writing. He had to have a police guard. You'll know that that's the lot of Christians in Turkey and that missionaries and Christians have been killed in Turkey in recent years. You'll know that uh, Daniel, planting churches in North India, faces real opposition Week after week, month after month. Do you remember that story of a woman who came to one of Daniel's church meetings? And after she went home, her family tried to set her on fire. She wasn't actually a Christian. She just went to the meeting. 
Remember that story where Daniel and his friends went to have a meeting in a, in a village and a guy showed up and said, next time we, we'll have a mob waiting for you. You know, Hindu extremists have taken over power in India. It's become one of the most dangerous places to be a Christian in recent years. Remember Grace Church people, that, 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 that place where evangelists and pastors go in, we can't even mention it in public, it's so, it's so dangerous. And they are greeted with stones, people throwing stones at them. Are we ready to pray for them, stand, stand by them? It's in our prayer calendar every month. We have a, a mission partner come and speak to us once a month. Let's stand with them. This, God's people will suffer. The suffering is all part of his perfect plan for his people. Yeah, God's people will suffer. That's why we need this second lesson. God's people are safe. God's people are safe in spite of the suffering. Just think here about how important God's people are to him in the flow of history and the rise and fall of empires and kings. How many books have been written about Alexander the Great? How important he is. Books, films, movies. So many people learn about Alexander the Great in school and he was great. And how much interest does the wider world have in Antiochus Epiphanes IV? <laughs> Let's be honest, most of us have never heard of him before this morning. Yet notice this, the comparative amount of space in the Bible given to Daniel, given to Alexander the Great on the one hand and Antiochus on the other. Alexander gets a couple of verses. He's described as a shaggy goat and then it moves on. All this space is devoted to Antiochus. In fact, the end of Daniel, we come back to him in more detail. Isn't it extraordinary that the great empires of the world are depicted as a ram and a goat battling it out by a canal? You see, God is far more interested in what happens to his people. That's why he, he zeroes in on Antiochus and the suffering of his people for that period. God is far more interested in what's going on with his people than what makes the headlines on the BBC or your other news outlet of choice. God is far more interested in the details of your life than what is going on today in number 10 Downing Street or the White House or the centre of the EU. God is much more interested. Jesus said, you know, uh, a sparrow falls to the ground. God knows about it. He knows actually how many, how many hairs are on your head. Oh, you of little faith. God is intensely interested and concerned with the lives of his people down to the smallest details. The suffering that is allowed to happen has clear limits set by God who gives power and then restrains it. That's the point of the number 2,300. God says, you may come this far, you may inflict this amount of suffering, and no more. And then he draws a line. Now, when we say God's people are safe, evidently it doesn't necessarily mean physically safe. There are Christians being persecuted physically today in northern Nigeria, in Iran, in North Korea, in China, in parts of India, all around the world, many other places, there is real persecution and violence. But there is an ultimate horizon which is far greater. Those people are spiritually 
eternally safe. That is the hope that's held out to the martyrs who are gathered around the throne in the book of Revelation. They're already died, but they're there safe in the presence of God. And they cry out, how long will this go on, Lord? How long? You see, in the most important, in the most profound, in the most enduring ways, we are safe eternally. We're safe in the arms of Jesus. Yes, God's people will suffer, but they are safe. And therefore, we can persevere now and endure now with patience in light of a future hope of a world that is far better, of the home where righteousness dwells, of a better tomorrow, and know that in the end every sad story will have a happy ending because God's people have a saviour. God's people will suffer, God's people are safe because God's people has a, have a saviour. Just remember that name of that angel. What was he called? Gabriel. Now, you may have heard that name before. You see, Gabriel, in the whole of the Bible, is given two assignments. And this is the first one. You know, go and tell Daniel this message about this horn, this little horn that's going to rise up and cause such devastation. But can you remember the second assignment that Gabriel was given? I'm sure you can because you just read about it at Christmas. Let me just share with you from Luke chapter 2. You know, uh, the angel appeared to, uh, to, to get to, in Nazareth, in the town of Galilee, to a virgin whose name was Mary. And that angel's name was Gabriel, the same one. And he said, greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Mary was really troubled and afraid. I would be if I saw an angel. But he says, don't be afraid. Mary, you've found favour with God. Now listen to what he said next. You will be with child and give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. And later in that same chapter, the priest Zechariah, thinking about what God has told them through Gabriel, says this, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Did you spot that? Back in Daniel, Gabriel's giving an announcement about a horn that will come forward and cause great devastation for God's people. But another horn is coming, the horn of salvation, that power of God breaking into the world through the virgin's womb, coming as a king who will reign forever in the line of David. Jesus Christ, the horn of salvation, the saviour. See, Gabriel's second assignment took him to something unbelievably glorious that he'd been longing to look into. See, this one will come, this king who will never be destroyed. This king will give such security that no one will be condemned or destroyed who puts their faith in him. We may be lamenting the fall of the temple, but we find in Jesus Christ, he is the true temple. The, the one that lasts forever, the, the, the place where we come to meet God and have our sins forgiven and be reconciled to him. We may, they may have been distressed about the end of the daily sacrifice, but now we find in Jesus Christ, the true sacrifice, the ultimate one, the one who was sacrificed once for the sins of many. Now we get access to God. Now we get reconciliation with God. 
We're brought near, we're adopted into his family through Jesus, the saviour, the one who guarantees a home for his people. World rulers, they're like rams and goats. Jesus is the good shepherd, the one who knocks them into shape, the one who guards his people. God's people will suffer. God's people are safe because God's people have a saviour. Now let me finish where we began with Sergei and Natasha. The perseverance of Natasha and the other believers started to make Sergei think. One day, just before he, he was going to throw a Bible into the flames, he, he took it and he just ripped a few pages out secretly. It was actually handwritten. They'd copied it out and some of the verses were missing. It was part of Luke's gospel around chapter 11 and he secretly took it back to his room to read this is what he wrote I opened up those pieces of paper and began to read them Jesus was talking and teaching someone how to pray I became more curious and read on this certainly was no anti-state material it was how to be a better person and how to forgive those who do you wrong suddenly the words leapt out of those pages and into my heart I read on engrossed in the kind words of Jesus. This was exactly the opposite of what I expected. My lack of understanding, which had been like blinkers on my eyes, left me then and the words bit deeply into my being. It was as if someone was in the room with me, teaching me those words and what they said. I read them again and again and again. Then I sat thinking, my mind lost in the wonder of it all. That was the start of a journey which led Sergei into faith in Jesus Christ. The two things that led him there were the lives of Christian believers, their courage, their tenacity and their humility in the face of suffering. Uh, but what moved him in the end was not just that witness, but the word itself, the scripture. It came with power into the heart of a man who was brutal and godless and hardened. And he wrote, I must show people, especially young people, that there is a God and he can change even the worst life as he has mine. You see, that points to part of the answer why God allows suffering, I think, into the lives of his people. Because through our suffering and our response to it, our witness to our hope for a better tomorrow and our confidence in God will shine all the more brightly. Because people will look at you and know there is something unmistakably different because of the way you respond to suffering. Because you impatiently endure it. Because you have a better hope. Let's pray that God will enable us to suffer and stand like that. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for this strange, powerful vision. And we ask that you would equip us with the resources that we need to suffer well, knowing that we're safe through the Saviour. And we pray for our brothers and sisters all around the world, but especially those in Turkey, in North India, and in that place that I can't name, that you would strengthen them, Lord, with power and keep them. In Jesus' name. Amen.